The NBA soon will distribute $30 million to each of its 30 franchises, the product of a $900 million private placement that the league completed to help teams keep cash flowing, with many revenue streams cut off. Our Chris Smith is in to talk about that story and other trends across sports finance. Then, we'll hear from executive editor and publisher Abe Madcor. That and whatever else comes up once we get talking here in the newsroom of Sports Business Journal. I'm Bill King, and this is First Look. With ticket revenue, concessions, and other streams cut off, many teams across sports will face a cash crunch. How they handle that, of course, will vary. And to talk about that is our Chris Smith. Chris, you've been hearing a lot about this in the sports finance world, right? With no fans in the stands, teams in every league are facing shortfalls, revenue shortfalls. And so where does the money to cover expenses come from, right? They they still have to pay the bills, chief among them salaries, player salaries, and that can create a cash flow pinch. Is it, and, and so here we are, right? And the NBA is about to start its season, and I want to talk a little bit more about that story. But the, the broader question, every league is, is, is looking at this. Even beyond that, there was that initial hit, and now here we are. How do you maintain business, and, and, and where do you turn? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's just a matter of liquidity. Uh, you know, you need to pay your bills and that requires cash. And if you don't have fans in the building, one of your major sources of cash is not there. You know, you're not selling concessions, you're not selling tickets, you're not selling parking. Uh, and so team owners have been pulling a bunch of different levers. Uh, we've seen obviously cost cutting to try to reduce, you know, how much you have to actually spend, mm-hmm. uh, staff furloughs and layoffs. Um, we've seen some equity financing. Uh, so team owners who are selling down their position on the team. Uh, so maybe, you know, we sell 5%, 10% to bring some more capital in uh, to the business. That way, you know, you have some more cash on hand. Uh, and I think maybe the most popular one has been debt financing, uh, looking for ways to just borrow the money. Uh, interest rates are really low right now. And so it makes it a little bit easier to say, you know, hey, we'll take that little bit of pain, you know, the next three years, next five years uh, in debt service um, to just have that cash on hand now. And so we're seeing that happen at the league level and at the team level. The case of the NBA right now, we the, the season about to start. You and John Lombardo have news in this week's issue. What's the league doing on this front as the season opens in a couple of weeks, largely without paying spectators or, you know, in, in the stands? So the NBA, you know, like a lot of the other leagues, they've expanded their credit facility. They've raised team debt limits, uh, you know, basically making it easier for teams to borrow. Uh, however, the, the unique thing they're doing is that they're in the process of closing uh, a $900 million private placement. Uh, essentially, rather than going to banks, going through the league, or sorry, rather than uh, going through their kind of uh, borrowing mechanisms uh, for teams, they're going to raise $900 million to just give to teams. Um, and so, uh, you know, this borrowing would be against their media rights uh, and other kind of league level revenues. And the plan is for the NBA to essentially just hand each team $30 million ahead of the season. Um, you know, and I've sp- spoken with sources who basically said, you know, not every team needs this right now. But the idea is that even for the teams that don't need it and aren't in a dire situation, you know, an extra $30 million destroys up the balance sheet. You know, if something would happen, you know, say we go all of 2021 with no fans, every team's going to need this in one way or another. And so uh, it's just a way to provide some of that security and some of that confidence for team owners uh, going into 2021 that they're going to have some liquidity. Um, given that there's so much uncertainty still with their season uh, starting up. Um, so it, it really is, you know, it's this, and to clarify, this isn't, you know, the team's borrowing the money from the league. 
Um, and you know, unfortunately, we're still sorting out kind of what the exact details are. And my best guess is that this is essentially going to be like a cash advance, uh, you know, because the league will have to pay back this money over the, uh, the next three, four years. Uh, so teams will, um, you know, effectively get a smaller share of league level revenues, and some of them are going to pay off this money. Um, but this isn't, you know, teams having to put debt on their books as a result. They're essentially just getting you know, $30 million up the top, uh, and that's going to help them you know, get through this year. Yeah, I would suspect that it's what, you know, the, it'll just be a smaller disbursement to everyone. You know, every every year you, you take all that, you take that national money and, and, and you whack it up, right? I mean, so you've got you've got your national media money. You've got, in the case of the NBA, you've got a fair amount of global media money. You've got all the, you know, you've got national sponsorship revenue, all that stuff that gets basically whacked up, uh, you know, to, to uh, among the 30 teams. Each of those slices will be a little smaller as a result. Yeah, exactly right. And so it's almost, you know, sort of like a cash advance, right? You know, you get the money now and you can kind of pay it back over the next few years um, just through, um, you know, the money you would have been receiving uh, from the league in those years. And no restrictions on how they have to spend it. That's another thing that's different here. You know, you've seen in, in, in the past, sometimes when the league has come in and, in a distressed situation, uh, or if you think about when revenue sharing has been altered in the leagues at times when uh, when when teams were, were losing money, um, sometimes that has come with a restriction. It said, hey, this has to go toward X or toward Y. And then there was the matter of policing that. That won't be the case here, right? Here's the money. You use it as you see fit. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that, you know, the league's not going to be uh, wanting owners to go and spending money on non-NBA businesses and <laughs> going to invest elsewhere with the money. Um, but yeah, within the team, it's sort of, you know, whatever you need this for, Do you need to pay your staff. Do you need to uh, pay down debt on your stadium? Um, you know, whatever you need the capital for, you know, here you go, here's $30 million, use it as needed. We heard from some people, in, and not just uh, not just the, the the you know on the league and team side, but businesses in general that immediately went into the credit markets and and sort of got all that they could, uh, opened up the spigot right at the beginning of this, right, just to make sure. Um, what do the leagues do in that regard, and specifically with their credit facilities? I would imagine a lot of this happened in the summer, right? Yeah, it, you know, I spoke with a banker once who told me that they did more borrowing early this summer than they had in over the pre- previous two, three years combined. It was, you know, uh, things got bad fast and everyone came went running to their bank and said, you know, I need to make sure I have capital uh, and I have access to liquidity here. Um, and so, uh, you know, and obviously I think we realized that things weren't quite so dire as people were maybe envisioning uh, back in April and May, uh, but we've seen the leagues make major moves. So, uh, you know, the NFL raised its team debt limit from $350 million to $500 million, so basically letting teams take on a whole lot more leverage uh, than they had been previously. And, uh, and the league took on over $3 billion in new uh, league-level debt. Uh, similar thing, you know, uh, the NBA raised team debt limits and nearly doubled its revolving credit facility. Um, you know, MLB took on uh, a bunch of money in team secured term notes. And, uh, you know, I spoke with someone who said, you know, so... Those we know about because Fitch publicly rates them. Uh, and you know, my understanding is that uh, MLS doesn't have a sort of formalized credit facility for its teams uh, or, or kind of formalized debt limits. Uh, but even that league has kind of explored what possibilities are uh, to create you know, new borrowing mechanisms or expand borrowing, borrowing mechanisms for teams. Is there any impact with all this borrowing on credit ratings or on terms? Um, you know, for, for one thing, when you talk about extending your, your you know, and, and getting to a, 
you know, to, to hire when you raise those debt limits. And now I've, I've, I've leveraged my franchise far higher than it was before. And I go back and look for even more money. I would suspect frequently that could mean, um, more or, or less friendly terms. Let's, let's put it that way. Is, is, has it gone that way or no? Yeah, it's a great question. That was sort of, you know, my number one concern as I was reporting this was, you know, this has got to be screwing over these teams, right? They're taking on all this debt. They need to raise more money. Um, you know, the interest rates are going to have to be killer and this is going to hurt them. Right. And what I learned is that that's not the case, uh, at least not yet. Uh, obviously everything we're talking about comes with that, you know, COVID caveat of we'll see what happens in the next few months. Uh, but to date, because the base rates are so low, um, so, you know, so if a team goes to a bank to borrow, essentially their interest rate is a combination of the base rate and the credit spread and the credit spread accounts for you know, that risk that the team already has a bunch of debt that the team, uh, you know, revenues are going to be down. Um, no, you know, and that uncertainty we're talking about in the coming months. Uh, and so that's where the banks get their security, essentially. You know, they say, if you want this money, you know, it's a little bit riskier. You're going to have to pay us a bit more interest. Uh, credit spreads have certainly widened. However, that base rate is so low now. Interest rates are you know, lower than they've been in decades, it seems. Uh, so that is actually offset things. Uh, more, you know, so that is done more uh, to offset the kind of previous rates than credit spreads have. Uh, so, you know, so one banker I spoke with said that, you know, for most teams, you know, your all-in rate is still less than 3%, uh, which is a godsend, right? You know, that's not, uh, you're not killing yourself here. That's basically free money. Um, and I, I should note, this is speaking in broad generalities. There's a team that was losing money coming into the pandemic. They already had a ton of debt. Uh, you know, no bank is looking to lend to them for less than 3%. So this is going to vary from team to team. But, you know, generally speaking, for most of these teams, you know, you're not looking at creating a future cash flow crisis from a debt service standpoint uh, because the rates have remained so low. When we think about this, I, I wonder, is there an open question about the business fundamentals, right? There's two different things going on here. Right now, there's, I can't have people in the building. They won't let me have people in the building. There's not anything I can do about it. But we're going to go through a phase where people are allowed back. And then we're going to see the question, we're going to have to answer that question of whether they want to come back. And it's not just a virus question. It's a personal finance question. And, and our business is going to want to spend the way they were before on club seats, suites, um, hospitality, all those things that were a part of business. Again, sponsorship revenue is, is, is we're, we're locking, we're, we're walking into year two of make goods uh, or season two of make goods in a lot of cases for these, those have to be paid back. That's all that's, that's, you know, that's revenue that's not going to come in the door. And so we're going to talk about something that's a little bit of a different world, even post COVID. Are those open questions about the bun- the business fundamentals and are the bankers asking those yet? It doesn't sound like it. I think there's some of that going on where people certainly have in mind that um, that's a concern, right? That this becomes a long-term, and by long-term, I mean, you know, beyond the next two or three years uh, issue, right? That we're talking that we're looking at a fundamental change of the business model here. Uh, but at this point, I don't think anybody is considering that as a, as a significant possibility. I think uh, most folks in the finance world that I've spoken with see COVID still as this is near term, even if it's a few years, and that we're going to get back to where we were, um, you know, uh, because, and, you know, number one among the reasons why is the media rights deals. Um, you know, if you're playing games, you have value for your media partners, and the media partners are the ones handing you the biggest checks. Uh, and so, 
that is a great deal of security uh, for these leagues. Uh, even if, you know, the tickets are going to be suppressed a little bit, even if the sponsorship money maybe isn't what it was uh, for another five years. Um, but the flip side of that is that, to your point, there is a real possibility there that if the business model changes, that, you know, changes the entire conversation. You know, team values have been based on, you know, all of those revenue streams being in place. And if you start tinkering with the formula, uh, that is going to create a lot of questions. It's going to create a lot of uncertainty. It's going to, um, and you know, frankly, create a lot of risk for for you know the lenders here, um, and for the team owners, uh, frankly. So uh, it, it's you know again one of those things that I think we're all used to hearing, which is who's to say? You know, what do we know? Um, but uh, the short answer is nobody I've spoken with is yet expecting that we're seeing a long term five ten year down the road change. Uh, you know, to, to those fundamentals caused by what we're seeing now, uh, you know, with the, the impact of COVID. Is there an impact of the team sales that we've seen? The fact that the Mets were able, the Wilpons were able to close it to close a contraction uh, with with uh, Cohen, um, you know, that that deal at a stout price. That that there have been team sales that that market has not shut down. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, one of the great lessons for me in, in covering sports business was the greater fool theory, right? So the banks, uh, but, but that gets back to here, whether, whether the banks necessarily see it that way, it's one thing to be able to say, I can get $3.4 billion for this franchise. It's another thing to get a bank to loan me money as if it's worth $3.4 billion. Because again, we're basing that not necessarily on the fundamentals of the economics of this franchise. We're basing it on the fact that all I need is two people who want to buy this franchise or one who wants it really, really badly, right? So that has always prevailed over time. But do the banks see it that way? And and how, or, or are they sort of comforted by the fact that, again, there, there are, there is, there is still certainly a, 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 a market out there for franchises. Yeah. What, you know, one of the things that bankers are interested in are debt to value ratios, right? And, you know, how much is this team worth that's taking on however many millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. Uh, and to your point, you've seen that valuations have remained strong so far, uh, obviously small sample size and that there's only a handful of controlled transactions happening any given year. Uh, but the Mets for $2.4 billion, the Jazz for nearly $1.7 billion. Uh, you know, these are numbers that were pretty much, you know, if you ask bankers back in January or February, that's what they would have expected those teams to sell for. So I think it's inspiring a lot of confidence that the control transactions we're seeing are trading at, you know, pre-pandemic values. And again, I, I think that if we start to see fundamental changes to the business model, or we see some team sales that come in under market, uh, then maybe that starts creating cause for concern. Uh, but to this point, I think the belief throughout the industry is team values are stable. Everyone expects that we're going to get back to normalcy at some point. Uh, and so the valuations of these teams, obviously a, a very you know forward-looking long-term calculation, uh, should be stable. Uh, so I think that the belief is values are steady. They're going to remain steady. Uh, and that helps, you know, kind of underpin uh, the confidence that a lot of these bankers have um, in lending to the teams. Let's speak a little bit more specifically, a little bit more about the NBA. Is the $30 million per team enough? And if it's not enough for anyone, where does it go from there? I suspect then we're talking about what we've what we've seen already, right? We're talking about uh, you know it, it bringing in additional partners. I, I wonder whether there's at what point do you 
you know, do you reach what really is a debt ceiling? And that's not really an option anymore. But there's always the there are always those limited partners out there in the in in, in the fish tank. Um, is that is that still the case? So the question is, is it enough? Uh, obviously, at thirty million is only going to be a small fraction of what teams need to spend this year. Um, you know, you're typically looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in expenses, uh, even just to pay your players. So, um, but it, it will be helpful, obviously. And and as we were saying before it's going to vary quite a bit from team to team. Uh, you know, some teams are going to be in a much tighter spot than others, uh, depending on how reliant they were on fans, uh, you know, depending on what their payroll looks like. So, uh, you know, h- hard to say whether any teams are going to still be kind of left in the cold here, going to need to find uh, you know, more liquidity this year. Uh, I would say probably fair to say likely that some teams will be looking to raise additional capital, uh, whether that's, through you know additional borrowing, or you know if they're at a limit, uh, raising you know going to equity financing. Uh, you know one thing we've seen that I think is going to be a uh, potentially a very helpful uh, mechanism is uh, the leagues have opened it up to uh, private equity financing, and so the NBA in particular has brought in Dial Capital Partners um, and is allowing them to take minority stakes in multiple teams. Uh, and so this is one of those things that the leagues have been resistant to. Uh, for a long time, but now because liquidity needs have become so high, um, and this is, I should note, you know, a lot of these kind of factors were pre-COVID as well, but COVID has accelerated the sort of need for liquidity, um, that you now have an institutional investor there. So we need to sell down 5%. There's another buyer in the market, and it's a well-heeled buyer. Um, and I think that, you know, that's not going to be the you know, shining night that's riding in to save the day. And uh, that's all we need to do. But it is one of those other levers the league has pulled that will now bring more liquidity into the market. And so if teams are in a tight spot, I think that, you know, there is an appetite uh, to buy LP stakes, right? If, if an owner needs to sell down or if LP owners need to get out, uh, that uh, there is some more money in the market there, um, at least in the near term. So, sorry, and I'm, t- I'm not trying to dodge your question. I can't say, you know, you know, so, you know, but even with that, maybe a team winds up, you know, stuck in a tight spot and, you know, really, really hurting uh, and has, you know, is borrowing at some exorbitant interest rate. Um, but it's hard for me to say without kind of knowing specifics about any individual teams. Um, but I, I think, you know, the overall outlook is one of, uh, you know, we're not, uh, you know, put on the parachute and jumping out the door just yet. Right. Well, there's an, you bring up a really interesting point too there as well, that, that the, um, the availability of institutional capital that wasn't there before. I mean, I, I remember at one point, you know, when Al Heyman was out uh, in the boxing world, um, launching premier boxing champions, um, that was, you know, that, that came from institutional, um, you know, from fund money. Um, and that was, that was a fund that actually they're initially, they're pre- they just wanted to get into sports. They saw the value in sports media rights. And so team was where they wanted to go. The problem was they had too much money. Um, they couldn't buy one team. And so they were hoping that they would maybe be able to get a piece of, of multiple teams. But of course, all the league rules prohibited that. And so as a result, that's where you saw things like F1, when you saw things like you know, premier boxing, you saw there was that institutional capital out there trying to find a way, trying to get access uh, into, you know, into what they thought was going to be a wildly escalating meteorites, which of course turned out to be the case, but you couldn't buy into a team. Right. And, and you know, that's the, the leagues have long been resistant uh, to the idea of institutional ownership. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of that is just the simple, you know, old school mindset of people own teams and we want to have individuals 
uh, who are not you know necessarily motivated by profit. They're motivated by you know an affinity with the team of wanting to build a winning team of connecting with the community. Uh, you know things that an institutional investor isn't necessarily going to be interested in, right? Versus a, a focus on the bottom line. Yeah, but we've we have seen some examples. I mean, we've you know the Indians for you know went public at one point, and it's been years, but went public at one point. I mean, I don't think it's even just that. I don't think it's just institu- institutional. It's the multiple team idea. It's those rules were set up to make sure someone couldn't own ten percent of five different teams, and so now, <laughs> now I have you know I look. You can't be on both sides of the game, right? I think that was the that was sort of the the the, the mental block that was there, and then there was a realization of there's no real control that comes with those stakes anyway. So it doesn't matter. Right, right. And that's the end with Dial. The idea is they're very passive. You know, I think it's if uh, if a team owner wants to bring them in and ask them to consult on, you know, I mean, how to reorganize things, I'm sure they'd be happy to do it. But the idea is they're going to give you some cash. They're going to take some equity and they're going to sit on the sideline and just watch their stake uh, value grow. And of course, franchise prices have gotten to the point that the, you know, there, there are only so many individuals that are that are able to carry, you know, 50 or 60 percent of, of a you know, a $2.4 billion asset. Right, right. And that, that's been the fundamental driver for, you know, leagues realizing that, hey, we might need some institutional money here because we, you know, valuations have skyrocketed so much that we've priced out pretty much, you know, the entire market, except for the very mega, mega wealthy individuals. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's increasingly difficult to convince someone to part with tens of millions of dollars to basically get a season ticket. So, um, you know, institutional money, though, is very happy to, to, you know, take that deal because they're interested in just, um, you know, collecting the dividends and uh, accruing their, their value in the team. So I, I, you are, of course, when you have your other hat on, primary hat in many cases, you are our Olympics reporter. I'm not going to let you go with it uh, without at least checking in to that world. How are, uh, how are preparations going uh, first off for, for Japan, but the, the broader Olympic calendar, we're at that point now, right? Where things, things should start to be moving. Are they? I think, yeah, it's, you're dead right that I think it's kind of heading into early next year and especially in January, it's, you know, kind of the, at that moment where, we need to have a better idea. You can't just keep saying, you know, we're it's still uncertainty. We can't know for sure. Um, the good news is it does seem like, you know, I think there's a lot of optimism about the games happening in Japan next year. Uh, what they look like, you know, to be determined. But there is seems to be a pretty solid expectation, especially now with a lot of the positive news around the vaccine, that, um, you know, we're going to have athletes in Tokyo, that they're going to have uh, some fans um, you know, probably not full capacity venues. Um, but, and I should note, you know, again, caveat, who knows what happens in the next six months. Uh, but, you know, and sort of everyone I talk to and kind of, you know, both the IOC and, you know, Tokyo Organizing Committee, uh, which is actually they're meeting with uh, the city of Tokyo and the, uh, the national government of Japan next week, um, kind of continuing to finalize a lot of these efforts uh, in terms of kind of COVID countermeasures, uh, they, they've released a you know, very long document kind of detailing um, the different ways they're going to adapt things. So everything from sanitation to transportation, uh, how things are going to be adjusted, uh, how athletes get uh, admitted into the village, where they have to go, how quickly they need to get out of the country once their events are completed. Uh, all of that is being kind of codified right now. So I, I think... You know, who knows what Tokyo winds up looking like? Who knows? Uh, you know, we know that 
uh, brands are probably going to be doing a whole lot less on the ground. We've already seen, you know, the Super Bowl. We know brands are doing a lot less hospitality. Uh, I think similar thing is happening uh, with the games where um, you know, some of these global sponsors might typically have a few hundred people on the ground. Now that's probably going to be 30 or 40. So it's going to be a, a, you know, a different vibe. Overall, the, the expectation is, um, you know, there will be a Tokyo 2020 games. It's just happening in 2021. All right. Well, great stuff on both fronts. Chris Smith, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Bill. First Look is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're a fan of our podcast, subscribe on your mobile device to have First Look delivered right to your phone every Monday morning. Now we turn to executive editor and publisher Abe Madcor. Abe? Thank you, Bill. I'm Abe Madcor. Good to speak with everybody on First Look. End of the year, always our 50 most influential executives in sports business, a list that is always much discussed. There's a lot of heavy lobbying that goes on. There's a lot of jockeying amongst organizations on where their executives should be on the list. But as we approached the 17th annual list, we knew we couldn't do it the same way. We generally take 50 executives. Sometimes we do a few more because we group them together and we rank them one through 50, purely subjective on where we think the influence sits during that time of year in the sports business. But we couldn't approach this list as we had in the past this year because the business we've written about is so dramatically different than it was 12 months ago. Influence has shifted and the people who generally make up the list and we've gotten criticized plenty over the years for having the same executives in the same companies, but those companies shifted this year. And so our list shifted this year. We also repositioned the list from the 50 most influential executives in sports business to 50 entities that influenced the sports business. Yes, that's a subtle change, but it was important for us. And so how is the list different? Well, we really doubled down and focused on league management union. What's that mean? Well, all the leagues that have worked so hard to bring sports back got a close look by us and their efforts are recognized by us. And it's across a league operation at the NFL, at the NBA, at MLS, MLB, and others. You'll see not just the commissioners lauded and ranked. We have many people throughout a league organization who are recognized this year because we saw the exhaustive and tireless efforts of these people to bring sports back. And frankly, if sports didn't come back in 2020, we don't know where we'd be right now. And so the people within the league structures who normally would not get recognized, we gave a lot of attention to. Also, we really look closely at leagues that came back successfully and quickly. Leagues like the PBR, they've never made our list before. They're on it. WWE, UFC, PGA Tour, they've always been on our list, but now they have a different type of positioning. And Lisa Baird at the NWSL, probably in most years, may not make the 50 most influential executives. But what she did in bringing that sport back in a bubble environment in Utah, I don't think she never got enough credit for really what she was able to do. So that's a big part of our list. In addition, unions, 
labor athletes. Without their work, without their collaboration, without their negotiations with the league and working with the leagues, sports wouldn't have came back. So we really paid a lot of attention and recognized the efforts of the unions, also the players, LeBron James, Chris Paul, Neka Agumake, J.C. Treader, others. More athletes make this list this year than ever before. So again, the list is different. The list has changed. Michael Jordan makes the list for the first time that we've done this. And why? Well, not just because of what he's done with the efforts in the NBA to bring the league back, not just because of what he did to bring a new NASCAR team into the fold with Denny Hamlin and Bubba Wallace, but really the role that the last dance played and just the psyche of the sports business coming when it did and showing the not just the Chicago Bulls dynasty, but also it really reaffirmed for me and for others in our newsroom the global reach of sports and Michael Jordan's influence on the sports business as we know it today. So those are all reasons that Michael Jordan is on the list for the first time. You've got organizations like the Miami Dolphins with Stephen Ross and Tom Garfinkel who are out front time and time again in how a sports organization can help a community. The Atlanta Hawks with Tony Ressler, Steve Coonan. Nothing they're doing within the NBA operation is influential in itself, but the way that they showed how the sports team can help society, especially in facilitating voting, what they did at State Farm Arena, really influenced others and served as a model for other sports facilities to follow. That's why they're on the list. Now, of course, we will be criticized. There will be a lot of raised eyebrows about people who didn't make the list. We are very light on team owners. Only a few made it. We wish we could have recognized more corporate brands because the corporate sponsors underwrite sports and they proved to be great partners by understanding the environment and showing patience. They're not on the list. Agencies, which generally really dot the 50 most influential list, are not on this list. So there are some notable people who aren't recognized this year who have been in the past. But we all admit this year was entirely different. And that's why we kept coming back to the efforts by those at the league and governing bodies, those at the unions, and those athletes, all who prove their value and prove their influence by preserving the sports business during a crisis. And so hope you take some time with the list. Love to hear your thoughts on the list. If you have questions, thoughts, or comments, please let me know. Love to hear them. But that was our process and our thinking behind the 50 entities that influence the sports business in 2020. I'm Abe Madcor. I look forward to speaking with you next week on First Look. Back to you, Bill King. Thanks, Abe. That's going to do it for this week. For Abe Madcor, Chris Smith, and our producer, Chris Mason, I'm Bill King, and this has been First Look.